The scripture reading this morning is going to be in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 944. That's Romans 8, 28 to 30. It's amazing how our passage just goes with the songs. It's awesome. No power of hell, no scheme of man. Listen to it in these verses. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now may God bless the preaching of his word also. Let's, uh, let's pray before we open up God's word this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It is so good to be here, to be at your church, to be in worship with your people, and to be gathered and seated in front of your word. And uh, we, we count it a great privilege, Lord. We pray now that you would just sovereignly come and through your spirit open up this word to us and, and powerfully that it would be preached through your spirit to your people for the comfort, for the joy, for the, uh, for the help of your people this morning. We, we just humble ourselves before you. We are so thankful for this text in front of us. Lord, bless us. Bless us now as we seek you in this and we... We look forward to what you will do through it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, it's good to be back here. Um, I've been back for a few weeks from India, but it's been a while since uh, I've been preaching, so I'm looking forward to being back. And we are starting, I have the privilege this morning of launching a new series for our church that we are entitling Saved. And uh, what we're going to do is we are going to look at two verses in Romans chapter 8, and we're going to spend six weeks really in just two verses of Scripture. Because there are some of the most pivotal verses in all the Bible. Um, Romans chapter 8, most of you know verse 28, but we're going to be looking at verses 29 and 30. One of the purposes of this series uh, is to go back to the fundamentals of our faith to sort of anchor our church, if you will, in the building blocks of theology. We're going to talk about the doctrine of salvation. What does it mean that we are saved And to go back to some of these foundational doctrines that are so important to us. Because even though we know that God has saved us, that's a great thing to know. If you're convinced of that this morning, and I hope you are, that's great. But we need to sometimes stop and actually think about how did that happen, right? Because it's one thing to know I'm saved, but I mean, but what all went on in that process of me becoming a Christian? What happened? And so for the next six weeks, we're going to be digging into that. And so whether you've been a Christian for 10 years or whether you've been a Christian for 10 days, um, this series, I think, will be helpful and useful to you. So let me start this way. I'm thankful that when I was a child, I was taught to love and appreciate the absolute sovereignty of God because it's had a massive effect on my life. I mean, without a deep commitment to and an understanding of the sovereignty of God, the bottom line is we will not have the strength that we need to face the trials and sufferings of this life. But hear me, a Christian who has a high view of God's sovereignty is a person who is able to cope with the pain and confusion of life because they are utterly convinced that no matter how hard things get, God is still in control. They're convinced of that. They know that God is too wise to make a mistake and too loving to be unkind. They understand that he's too good to be unkind. And that's one of the byproducts of studying verses like this. What it does is it plants the soul into the soil, the rich soil of God's sovereignty. And when that happens, what grows out of it is a harvest of peace and joy and comfort and security. 
I mean, it just becomes a stronghold for your life. So we're going to be preaching on two verses for the next six weeks. And these verses have been called the golden chain of salvation. And they're called that because they contain several interconnected aspects of our salvation. Look at Romans 8, 29 and 30. You're going to see this. Paul gives us several theological words here. And each word explains an aspect of our salvation. And notice that Paul orders them in such a way as to show the logical progression of our salvation. So the first word is the beginning of the process, and the last word is the end of the process. And that's obviously intentional. Each word is built on the previous word as they highlight a different aspect of God's work in us. Now, specifically, Paul mentions six things here. Here they are in order, okay? These are the words, foreknown, predestined, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Actually, the word sanctified isn't in the text in terms of the word itself, but the concept is clearly seen in verse 29 when Paul says that we are being conformed into the image of his son. That's sanctification. So even sanctification is there. So that's where we're going over the next several weeks. One sermon on each of these words explained and brought home and applied to your life. And I think this will be, I trust, a beneficial study for all of us. Now, today we begin with this word, as you saw on the screen, foreknown, foreknown. And before we get into that word, what I want to do is just kind of set the table here of Romans 8, um, because we need to know where we're at in the Bible, all right? Romans 8 is considered for some people, their favorite chapter in the whole Bible. And specifically, verse 28 is the most quoted verse in this chapter, without a doubt. I mean, it's everywhere. It's a go-to verse for so many people. We have it on t-shirts. It's on our coffee mugs. Some of you probably have it painted on your wall at home or in a piece of artwork. I mean, it's just a well-known and comforting verse. But here's the thing, when people quote from verse 28, the danger is that they remove it from its context or they forget that it comes after verse 27 and before verse 29. And if you rip that verse out of its context, the promise of verse 28 will seem empty and hollow. I want to help you understand why in a second. I mean, it'll come off as naive, right? Like God works all things for my good. That sounds great, but... But what about my cancer? Or what about the death of my spouse? Or what about the fact that I'm living right now in a broken marriage? Or that I'm living with parents who who never get along and my home is broken? Or I come from a divorced home? Or I'm living right now in an abusive situation? Or I lost my job? Or I'm in the middle of bankruptcy? Or I live with chronic pain or Alzheimer's? What do you mean God works all things for good? Verse 28, I mean, is that, that sounds great. It's a nice Christian cliche, but I don't feel the effects of that on my daily life. So what's interesting to me is that as popular as verse 28 is, that verse will seem like a naive wish and a broken promise, hear me, unless there is some theological weight underneath it to support it. Verse 28 is a massive promise And it requires a massive foundation in order to support it. And the foundation is verses 29 and 30, and that's why we're preaching these verses. Here's the thing. People like parts of Romans 8, all right? And and, and I'm emphasizing the word parts because there, there are verses in Romans 8 that, frankly, people don't like. They want to be selective. What they say is, hey, tell me about how God loves me and is always working out for my good. Talk to me about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit prays for me. I like that. Talk to me about the fact that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Give me some of that. Talk to me about the fact that since God is for us, nothing, absolutely nothing can stand against us. Tell me that, pastor. But don't you use those dirty words, foreknowledge and predestination. (laughs) Stay away from those words. If you go there, if you start talking that way, man, I am out of here. I mean, that's the the feeling you kind of get around people. Well, listen, we're not going to be selective, all right? We're going to preach all of this. We're going to deal with all of God's word. We're going to talk about 
God doing us good, yes. And then we're going to talk about election and predestination. In fact, if we don't preach verses 29 and 30, listen, the promise of verse 28 is useless. So we're going there. We're going to do that. Look at, look at, uh, let's begin right there in verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Now, notice this is not a generic statement, okay? It's a qualified statement. It's for those who love God. It's what it says, for those who love God. God is working out good for them. Hear me, God is not working out good for everyone in this room. Think about that. God is not working everything for good for everyone hearing me right now. It's for those who love him. And then Paul gives a second qualification, and for those who are, listen to these words, called according to his purpose. Now, if Paul would have just said God is working for good to those who love him, it might have sort of left us with the impression that God's good work is based upon my love for him. Certainly God is working out good for those who love God. That's true. But here's the question, who are the ones who love God? They are the ones, next phrase, that have been called according to his purpose. Those are the ones that love God. Note his sovereignty here. The only way Romans 8, 28 is going to be true is if God is absolutely, comprehensively, universally sovereign over absolutely everything. And that is our confidence. And if that's our confidence, that's what enables us to see Romans 8.28 as the heart and soul of God's promise to do us good. And so what we see initially here is the importance of the Christian mind. The importance of the mind in Christian living. Paul is not content in simply letting us know that all things are going to work out for our good. He doesn't want to just give us a book of God's promises. Here's 25 promises that God... No, he's going to undergird that with massive, powerful theology. He's going to say, these promises are not cheap little thrills to kind of get you excited for five minutes in the morning. Here's a promise. Here's a huge promise. And in order to show you that this promise is true, I'm going to pack some serious, hardcore, deep, profound theology underneath it and prove to you why that promise is true. And I love that he does that. Paul recognizes that our minds are asking a lot of questions. And if those questions are not properly answered according to the Bible, then we will not remain anchored when suffering comes. See, we need Romans 8, 28 when suffering hits us, when the trial comes into your life, when the marriage begins to crash, when you go through a death of a loved one, Romans 8.28 is massively needed. So that's why we have to, to, to know that this verse is true for us. So let's get into the reason why 28 is true, okay? And what he's going to do is he's going to anchor that promise in six words. And I've already given them to you, all right? These words, foreknown, predestined, called, justified, sanctified, glorified. All right, so we're going to look at this word foreknown. And I'm going to ask two questions. What does it mean? All right, and why does it matter? Very simply, what does it mean? Okay, now a few things in the church have caused more arguments than these words, probably. Foreknowledge and predestination. And I just want to let you know up front that I'm well aware of that. Okay, (laughs) All right, so let me just throw my cards on the table up front, and I want to tell you this. I'm not interested in arguments. I'm not interested in in a debate here. I'm interested in studying the words found in this text and explaining them as faithfully as I know how. And if that bothers us, then I trust you'll be bothered with the Bible and not, hopefully, my heart and attitude. Second thing is, by way of preface, is... I'm not a fan boy. Uh, John Calvin had some issues. Let's be honest about that, okay? All of us have issues. So, frankly, I don't care whether you call yourself a Calvinist or whether you know the acronym TULIP. It It doesn't matter to me. I only have one agenda, and that's to teach God's word rightly, okay? So let's read it together. Verse 29, here it is. 
All right, let's look at it. Verse 29, for those whom he, say it, foreknew, okay, he also, say it, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. All right, I'll stop there. Okay, now I, I just want to say I really feel like it's, it's cowardly of us if we do not preach those words. I also think it's a great shame when churches don't because they are words full of hope and comfort. And I'm arguing that without those words, Romans 8, 28 loses its power. I mean, I'm convinced that we have such a weak, man-centered Christianity in America. People are absolutely afraid to move in a God-centered direction. Churches are so watered down and man-centered and weak. It's just unbelievable. It's like the church is an absolute wreck in America. We have become so watered down. Pastors don't preach about sin. I mean, it's like sin. It's like the fundamental issue in the Bible. Pastors don't preach about it. They wuss out all the time. They don't preach about sin. They don't take a stand on issues that matter. They won't preach the full counsel of God's word. Instead, they tickle men's ears. They give them what they want to hear so they can grow big. And they're more concerned with growing big than glorifying God. And when we get wrapped up in that business, we need to shut it down. It's amazing. And so men refuse to preach the absolute sovereignty of God. I mean, because they're afraid, well, what if it offends the sensitivities of the people? And by doing this, think about what they do. They cut the Bible of its power and ironically rob themselves of so much joy and security that they would otherwise have. These are not dirty words, foreknowledge and predestination. These are precious words. To be foreknown by God is an awesome thing. What does it mean? Well, for starters, there are two things that concerning the foreknowledge of God that many don't understand. The meaning of the term and its biblical use. So let's talk about that. When the subject of foreknowledge is taught, many people agree that God predestines some to be saved but they want to say that he does so by looking into the future to see all who will believe in Christ and who will not. And if God sees that a person is going to come to saving faith, then he will predestine that person to be saved based on the knowledge of that person's faith. Okay? So hear me. In this way, people suggest that the ultimate reason why some are saved and some are not lies within people themselves and not God. Okay? So the only thing that God does in his predestination or his predestining work is to confirm the decision that he knows people will make on their own. All right? Now, this is a very common view. I mean, this is let's be honest, probably the most common view that's out there today. All right. And some of you may be thinking that this morning, right now, that may be your perspective on that. And that's fine because we're happy for people to be in different places on this issue. Okay. For us, the, the, the core issue of our church is preaching the gospel correctly, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. So the gospel is king around here. Okay, so we're okay if you're wrestling through these issues. That's a good thing. We, 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 we value that. You take the word, you wrestle with it, you work with it, you try to understand it. Okay, now that's the common view, but let me humbly suggest this morning that I do not think this is the best way to understand foreknowledge or this text right here, Romans eight twenty nine. Let me show you why I think that reasoning is misguided, and I'm going to give you four reasons, Okay. Four reasons. Number one, uh, such a view does not adequately deal with what we can call or theologians call moral inability of man. The problem is it assumes that man has the ability in our own corrupt and sinful flesh to just choose God. Like on our own. Like one day I can just, hey man, I just haven't made that decision. I can just kind of just do it. It assumes that we have that power in us. Is that true? Do we have the power in us to just sort of choose God like that? 
it, or does, do we need God to regenerate us? Do we need God to give us a new heart or a new nature so that we seek God? See, it assumes that we have the ability to exercise faith in Christ on our own apart from God's help. Now, the question I'm asking is, is that true? We'll stay in the same chapter and just go to verse 6, Romans 8, since we're in Romans 8. And let's just look down at verse 6. Now, there are, there's a very important word here in this passage. Now, listen, we're talking about moral inability, man's inability. Romans 8 is a very important text. In fact, I would say that if you don't understand this point of doctrine, your whole view of the doctrine of salvation will be turned upside down. So Romans 8, verse 6, let's read that. Paul's describing the, the believer and the unbeliever. He's talking about the mindset on the flesh and the mindset on the spirit. Verse 6, the mindset on the flesh, listen, is death. He says that when your life and mind is controlled by your sinful nature, the end is death. But he contrasts that with this, the mindset on the spirit is life. And peace. Now notice verses 7 and 8. He describes more specifically the unbeliever. And he mentions four things about the unbeliever. Just, just download this. Watch, watch this. Here it is. First thing is he's hostile to God. Hostile. Okay. Number two, he does not submit to the law of God. So you got a hostile man. you got a man who does not submit to the law of God. Number three, he's not even able to do so. Now, do you hear that word, ability? He's not able, unable, not able to do so. And number four, they cannot, cannot please God. Now, there's a word there in Greek that's mentioned twice in those verses. Notice it. You'll see it at the end of verse 7 and at the beginning of verse 8. He does not say that man is unwilling to do so. Notice this. It's true that he's unwilling, but that's not what he says. He says that he's not able, just not even able incapable, paralyzed, dead, not able. And then in verse 8, the word cannot is used twice. What's he talking about? He's talking about inability. Inability, no power, no desire, no heart, no motivation. There's just nothing there, okay? Now look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Are we sure that this is taught in Scripture? Let's look. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul's describing the natural man. Now, when you study the Bible, it's words are important, okay? We got to pay attention to words. And if we don't pay attention to words, our theology can get messed up. So every word is important. God has inspired it all. First Corinthians 2, let's look at verse 14. In verse 14, he's describing, again, the natural man as one that does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, okay? Now, why? Because they are foolishness to him. And here it is, listen, he cannot understand them cannot understand them do you see that not that he will not but that he cannot he cannot he cannot he cannot understand them the deepest problem that we have is total inability just unable we're unable. Something has to happen. Like we need a jump start. We need to be regenerated. We need life. We need somebody to come in and crank up the engine for the first time. And unless it's started up by God, it's not happening. It's not happening. Jesus describes man in the same way. Okay. So this isn't just Paul. Paul's not just kind of out here, you know, saying crazy stuff. Jesus is going to go the same direction in John chapter six. Flip over to John 6. And when you get to John 6, let's look at verses, verse 41. What does he say in verse 41? Jesus said, Therefore the Jews started complaining about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, Isn't this Jesus the son of Joseph whose father and mother we know? How can he now say that I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Stop complaining among yourselves. Here it is. Listen, no one can come. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Okay. So he says, man cannot come. God must first do something to him. God must draw man. He must pull him. He must influence him. And if God does not do that, then man will not come. Do you see the language is clear here? According to Paul and Jesus, man cannot come. Look at verse 63. It is the spirit that gives life. 
the flesh profits nothing. And man's flesh cannot produce life. It's the spirit. It's the spirit that gives life, okay? He's the agent of regeneration. And what does he use? The word of God. Verse 64, there are some who do not believe. Then verse 65, no one can come to me unless. Do you hear that language? All right, so what's the problem? We cannot. Inability. We are unable. And if we do not understand that word, our theology will be wrong. Okay? So this is important. You say, God looked down to the future to see who would believe in him, and then he chose that person. But listen, here's the problem. Man cannot just believe. He needs help from God, which is why Ephesians 2.8 says, It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this, grace through faith salvation, this is not your own doing. It is a what? Gift. Faith is a gift. So we, we, can't even, we can't even say, I exercise faith in God on my own and take any credit for that. God gives it as a faith. Okay, so I'm giving you four reasons why I really feel like that view is not helpful. It's misguided, okay? And the first is that it does not adequately deal with the moral inability of man, okay? Number two, it robs, listen to this, it robs God of his independence, all right? If God decrees, okay, if, God, if God's decrees rest upon what he discovers man will do, then that means that God becomes dependent on man and loses his sovereign independence. You hear that? If, if God makes a decision based on what man does, then he loses his sovereign independence and becomes dependent on man. And certainly we would all acknowledge that God cannot be dependent on anything and continue to be God. So it robs God of his independence. I think that's a serious issue. Number three, it's meaningless to assert that God chose people that he saw would first choose him. Let me, let me, let me share why I think that's the case. God's choosing before the foundation of the world is meaningless if he has to first find out who would choose him. If that were to happen, God would essentially be pretending that he made the choice when it was really man. And if that's true, that I chose God first, then what comfort is it to me to tell me that God foreknew me? I mean, that's like, that's like God, that's like God quickly going behind the curtain, God seeing that I would choose him and quickly going behind the curtain and choosing me on the basis of that knowledge. There's no comfort in that to know that God foreknew me. So it robs us of comfort. And then finally, this is the, the most important reason is that it completely turns this verse upside down. And by this verse, I mean verse 29. If we say that God's foreknowledge means that he saw certain sinners who would believe in Christ, and because of that, he predestined them unto salvation, then we preach the very opposite of what this text is actually teaching. Scripture affirms that God in his sovereignty determined beforehand to set his love and affection upon a countless number of people and then determined to give them, to grant them faith that they would repent and believe in him. So God's choice is the cause of our faith. Okay, hear this. His, God's choice is the cause of our faith. Our faith is the effect of God's choice and that's taught all through scripture it's god who starts and it's we who respond okay that's that's the way it works so romans eight twenty nine should not be used to say that god based his choice on a foresight of the fact that a person would believe instead romans 8 speaks about the fact that god knew persons not some fact about persons this is relational knowledge now it's true, of course, theologically, that God foresees our faith in him. Okay, everybody would agree with that. Of course, God knew that I was going to believe in him. He knows all things. He's all-knowing. But the question is this, where did the faith which God sees come from? Where did that faith come from? Who created that faith? Who prompted that faith? Who sparked that faith? And the only biblical answer to that question is that the faith which God sees is the faith which he himself creates. 
God sees because he decrees. He knows we will believe because he set his love on us from eternity past. And if we get that backward, we rob God of his glory and we transfer the praise unwittingly to man. And that's why doctrine matters. And friends, also, this is why we are absolutely committed to being God-centered at Heritage Baptist Church. We don't want to do anything that's going to rob God of his glory and, and his praise. So foreknowledge is personal. It's relational language. This is the sense that Paul has in mind here in Romans chapter 8. He uses similar language in 1 Corinthians 8, 3, when he says this. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 8, 3. But if one loves God, one is known by him. We're talking about what the word foreknown means. And we're saying that it's relational language, okay? Or in Galatians 4, Paul says, but, no, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by him, okay? So relational language. When people know God in scripture or God knows them, it's personal knowledge that involves an affectionate, saving relationship. And it's a really important point to make here is that people are in view here, not the actions of people. Look at verse 29 again. Just notice the grammar, okay? This is so important. Romans eight twenty nine, and we know that all things work together for the good, for good for those. You hear that? Those who love God and are called according to his purpose because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Notice the verse does not say what God foresaw. It says whom he foreknew. It does not say what God foresaw. It says whom God foreknew. There's a world of difference there. Romans 8 says nothing about God foreseeing that a certain amount of people would believe. Neither is that mentioned anywhere in scripture. The word foreknown in the Bible means something far deeper than that, than a mere intellectual apprehension of some fact. It is, it's deep. When the term foreknown is used in reference to God, it signifies favor towards something. It's not mere knowledge about something. It's actually an affection toward someone. So Exodus, let me show you several, several examples of this in, in the Bible. Okay. Exodus chapter 33. We're talking about this word foreknown. We're asking, okay, is it relational language? Does it really mean to set your love and affection upon? And I'm arguing, yes, it does. It's exactly what it means to be foreknown means to be loved. Exodus thirty three seventeen. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. God is not saying that I know your name is Moses. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying, uh, you know, I, I, I was thinking about you and I was thinking, you know, that, that guy's name's Moses. No, he's saying, I know you. I it's not that I've learned your name. It's that you have found favor in my sight. You are mine. I know you. See that? All right. Jeremiah. Let's go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah 1 verse 5 says this. God again is speaking and he says this. Before I formed you in the womb, listen to this, I knew you. What does that mean? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, notice the language, I set you apart. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Notice that to know here carries the idea of being set apart, of being appointed. To know is to choose, to appoint, to enter into a special relationship with. Okay? Now let's go to Amos. The book of Amos, Amos chapter 3. And if you don't want to flip there, you can just listen. Amos chapter 3, verse 2. Here's a really interesting verse. Um, God says, you only, speaking of the nation of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, what does that mean? Okay, at first reading, that's kind of weird because when God is speaking to Israel, is he saying that he's ignorant of all the surrounding nations? You only have I known? Is he saying, I don't know who the Assyrians are. I don't know who the Philistines are. 
Is he saying that? No, obviously he's not meaning that. What is God saying? God is saying uh, he knows all the nation. He's saying out of all the families of the earth, though, you only have I loved. You only have I set apart. You only have I cherished. Have I chosen to be mine? I entered into a special relationship with Israel and I called them his, my son and they are my beloved people. That's what God means here. All right. So this is, this is this foreknown language. What is it what it means to be known, to be intimately loved? Now, if you're still a little lost, this one will help you. Genesis 4.1 says, Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a child, Cain. Now that does not mean Adam walked into the house one day and said, Oh, you're Eve, nice to meet you. And Eve went, Oh, I'm pregnant. (laughs) Which means there's a knowing and there's a knowing. Perhaps you've heard someone joke around and say, I knew her in the biblical sense. That's the idea here. There's a way of knowing that's intimate. It's filled with love. Now, that's just a few verses in the Old Testament. Okay, the same thing can be seen in the New Testament. The word know is used in the same way. To know who, to know is used in the same way. Those, those who repent and follow Jesus um, know him. They are, they are known by him. All right. And then, so when you get to Matthew chapter seven, those who did not repent, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter seven, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Skip down a couple verses. Jesus will say to them, I never, what knew you. I never knew you. Doesn't mean he doesn't know who they are. Of course he knows who they are. I never knew you means I never had a saving relationship with you. All right, skip over to John chapter 10. Jesus is continuing in this language of knowledge. What does he say? John 10 verse 14. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Again, this language is language of belonging and intimacy. It's a language which indicates a special relationship. That's why Jesus said in John fifteen seventeen, you did not choose me. I chose you. Really fascinating language there. Or the one that verse that we know so well is we love him because he first loved us. See, a lot of this stuff just comes down to getting our priority right. What comes first? It's the order. God loved us first. So this idea that God foreknew us in Romans eight twenty eight means that God set his eternal love upon us from the beginning. And he did this in order that we might enter into a saving relationship with him. Hear this. This is awesome stuff. Listen, God simply decided to love us out of the freeness of his own heart. I mean, it's not like you were really an awesome person, man. You are so awesome. And God was looking down through the corridors of time. He's like, man, that guy is going to be just amazing. That guy's awesome. I'm choosing him. He's going to be on my team. That's crazy. (laughs) Every gift you have came from him. So he's not seeing anything special in you that's causing him to love you or me. And see, that just offends us because we're like, we're so narcissistic. We just want to be praised. We want to be loved. We want to be valued. We want to be special. We want to be acknowledged. We want to be recognized. I got gifts, man. I got gifts. Look at me. I got the skill. I can do this. I can, you know, and we're just so selfish. And it just, it offends us. This kind of stuff offends us. What do you mean God didn't see anything in me that he loved that caused him to want to choose me? Why do we have a hard time admitting that? That, why do we have a hard time admitting that we are a wreck? That we are wasted? That we, that we were Ezekiel 16 like a baby thrown out into an open field naked and left to rot. That's the picture God uses to describe Israel. But all of a sudden we think we're just so awesome. We have got to get back to understanding who we are. Friends, 
the, the fundamental doctrines that we have to explore and study is the doctrine of God, who he is, and the doctrine of man, who we are. And when you see the gross disconnect between those two, you will not find any room for boasting. But see, we struggle with this kind of stuff because human affection is grounded in something we find attractive in the other person. See, the love of God is not like this. The love of God is not grounded in something he finds in us. In fact, when he speaks to his people in Deuteronomy 7, listen, he says this, the reason I have loved you is because, what? I have loved you. (laughs) What kind of answer is that? The reason I've loved you is because, see, as humans, that doesn't even work with us. Because we're so conditional. The reason I love you is because you did something for me, man. The reason I love you is because you're, you're a nice person. You're really kind. The reason I love you is because you are so kind and loving and gracious. No, that's how we work. We have to have something. But God says, the reason I've loved you is because I've loved you. What does he mean by that? He means that there's nothing that we did to cause him to love us. In fact, in spite, hear this, in spite of all the wickedness and filth and bad things that we have done, God says he loved us with an everlasting love. And that means because his love is not conditioned upon something we we, we have done, did or didn't do, that means that his love is pure. And his love is consistent and his love is stable and his love is secure and his love is forever because it is rooted in his own character. Praise God that God's love for me is not rooted in my ability to be a good person or do enough good things every day to keep him happy. Praise God that his love for me is rooted in his own perfect character, which means it'll be stable and it'll be forever. That's the God we serve. So let's move out of theology proper now and let's just get into the application. And, and this is the part I just want to just, just press home to you so lovingly. This is just awesome stuff. And perhaps you're already seeing why this matters. So in the second place, why does this matter? Okay, this, this whole issue of foreknowledge. I want, to give you, I want to give you four reasons why it matters. All right, five, number one. First reason why this matters is that it gives you constant motivation to keep walking with God. And I think we need that, don't we? Don't we get lazy, lethargic? We just start wandering off, veering off. We need to be guided every day. You need God to turn us and say, Jonathan, look at my eyes, look at my eyes, look at my eyes. I say this to Judah all the time, I'm trying to talk to him. He's running around trying to pick up all Judah, look at that, look at that, look at that, look at that. I need that constant, we need that constant reminder and motivation. Eric Alexander said this. He said the doctrine of election, which by the way, foreknowledge and election are essentially the same thing, just in case that's not clear in your mind. Uh, foreknowledge and election, we are chosen by God. We are foreknown by him. These are essentially the same things, okay? Different terms, but really getting at the same concept. Eric Alexander said this, the doctrine of election is not a bomb to be dropped on people. Bothers me when Calvinists do this. Bothers me. Don't be an idiot, man. Go into a place and just dropping bombs and just irritating people. These guys need to be locked up. (laughs) It's ridiculous. So he says this, he says, the doctrine of election is not a bomb to be dropped on people. It's not a banner to be marched out under, woo, look at us, hey. That's why we don't make this the fundamental issue of Heritage Baptist Church. You look at some church names, it's hilarious. It's like, we are the, the apostolic tabernacle of the second, you know, Peter, whatever, and just all these descriptors. And you're like, man, like, you've just, you just basically put on your church sign, we don't want anybody here. Unless you're in that real narrow exclusive deal. (laughs) So he says, I can't even get through his quote here. Just (laughs) the doctrine of election is not a bomb to be dropped on people. It's not a banner to be marched out under. But listen, it's an anchor for the souls of those who are in Christ. That's what it's for. And isn't that true? That when all hell attacks us, when our own hearts condemn us, when we've made a mess of things, when it's the worst week or month or year and everything seems to be falling apart in your life, 
it's at this time that we find rest and comfort in this teaching that if we are in Christ, we remember that God loved me. Here it is. God loved me before I was ever born or had ever done anything good or bad. That God loves me. It means God will finish what he has started in me. He loves me from eternity to eternity. And friends, a God who loves me like that is a God I want to seek. It motivates me to pursue him daily. That's why this doctrine matters. Don't you want to seek that God? He loved you from eternity past. Man, sign me up for that. I'm following him. Okay? Here's the second reason why it matters. It matters because it comforts us in times of trouble. And this means that God chose you before the foundation of the world. So treasure this. Before God created the world... All right, he already had an affectionate interest in you as an individual. I mean, he's thinking of your name. He's thinking of your person. Before God even created the world, all right, he already set his affections on you. He already set you apart and engaged, fully engaged his heart with you and committed himself to your eternal welfare. He foreknew you. Now, can you see the relevance is? Why does Paul need to say this? Because he's trying to comfort his people in times of trouble. I mean, look at him. In chapter 7, Paul is crying out. What does he say? He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Don't you wake up some days and you're like, I am so sinful. Man, I hate this world. I'm just being bombarded. Satan's hitting me over here. The flesh is hitting me on this side. I'm so corrupt. Who is going to deliver me from this world and this body of death? And then in chapter 8, we read this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy of com- being compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. The sufferings of this present time. We're living in suffering. And then at the end of chapter 8, he says, what, you know, uh, uh, what will stand against us? He says, well, tribulation, will persecution, will this, will this, will this, will this. This is a hard life that we're living in. Paul's encouraging a persecuted church. He's comforting a broken and harassed people. That matters to us because some of you are going through a very difficult time right now. Perhaps your health has failed. Maybe it's your finances. You're broke. You wonder where your next paycheck's coming from. Maybe it's your marriage. It's, it's your broken home. Maybe it's all that brought you to this point and you're beginning to start questioning your faith. Oh, if you're questioning your faith, if you're beginning to sort of crumble and fall apart, hear me right now, okay? Because... This pain, you, you, I understand what you're saying. You're saying this pain in my life has led me to this place where so much for Romans 8, 28, so much for God working all things together for the good. Look at this, look at this wake of destruction behind me. My life's a wreck. So much for Romans 8, 28. And you're beginning to think that way. And then God reminds you, he reminds you of this truth. Hey, listen, I set my love on you before I created the world. And it begins to change your perspective. It begins to change your perspective. And it, be, and it reminds you that Jesus did not suffer so that you won't suffer. Instead, Jesus suffered so that when you suffer, you will become like him. He's got a purpose for your suffering. Number three, why does it matter? We said two things so far. First thing we said is that it gives you constant motivation to walk with God. Secondly, it comforts you in times of trouble. And third, it reveals just how much God really loves you. And we need to hear that. We need to hear that message preached to us. I want you to adore the amazing grace of God. Do you see that this all-knowing God chose you despite the fact that he saw you covered from head to foot with sin? When his eye fell upon us, we were regarded as an helpless infant, as I said, thrown out into an open field, cast out, unwashed, left to die in our filth. But seeing us this way, God's heart was moved toward us. Do we not admire the marvelous grace of God which chose us in spite of all this? I will never, ever understand God's choosing of me when he had an infinitely clear sight of my sin. Think about this. I do not, I know something of my sin and what I see is awful. But God has an infinite knowledge of it. And I'm horrified by my own sin. 
And God has an infinite knowledge of it. But I have never had such a clear and exhaustive knowledge of my sinfulness as God has. And yet God saw the worst about me in the highest degree of intensity of that sin. And despite his complete knowledge of this, he decided to set his love upon me before the foundation of the world anyway. That's, that's insane. That's unreal to me. And if that does not make us admire God's love, then nothing, frankly, will. I mean, remember that you were redeemed. Come and wonder at the price that was paid for you, an enemy. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Number four, matters because it reassures you that God will love you till the end. We need that reassurance. He's not going to give up on you. Some of you understand your sinfulness to such a degree that you feel like, man, God's going to quit on me. I know he's going to quit on me. He's not. He's not going to quit on you. Okay, here's why. Some of you walk around in constant fear. You live in this twilight world where you believe that God loves you sometimes. You believe that you're justified, sanctified, and will be glorified. Maybe, hopefully, you feel that God is for you, usually, normally, but you're not convinced that God is totally for you all the time, unconditionally, in Jesus Christ. And the point of this text is to, is to correct that. I, I cannot understand, based on Romans eight twenty nine, why we would ever fear that God would someday get so fed up with us that he would abandon us. Listen, if God has gone to this length to redeem us, if he has a complete knowledge of the worst about us long ago, then surely there is nothing that God sees in you now that would cause him to cast you away. Otherwise, he never would have set his love on you to begin with. He saw it from eternity past. So let this be a comfort to you that when the evil of your sin weighs heavy upon you, remember that your soul is married with Christ. I was thinking about this example. When a man takes a wife, it is for better or for worse. Now, I can imagine a man saying, look, I'm living with a really wicked and evil wife. And had I known this woman better, I never would have married her. Right? I can imagine a scenario like that. But no husband would enter into a marriage with an evil woman if he knew that he could see everything about her ahead of time and what all that she would do. He'd be a fool to do that. And yet this is exactly what God has done with us. He has taken all of our sins to account and then he entered into a marriage with us with that knowledge. And so he says to his sinful people in Hosea, listen to God's heart. How can I give you up? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart stirs within me. All my tender compassion is aroused. What a God we serve. Listen, his loyal love and faithfulness is forever. We are safe in his love. Maybe some of you feel this morning that you never were so consciously sinful as you are now. But listen, if you feel your sin, the place of mercy is still open with all of its power to wash away your sin. The only thing you need to feel this morning is your need of him. Is anybody in here that feels their sin and need? Okay, listen, the fountain is open. Go get your sins washed and cleansed. It's free for you. No man is beyond the reach of Christ. Come to him today. All you need is a broken and a repentant heart and he will receive you. All right? And this is the final thing. This teaching of the foreknowledge of God, that he foreloved me, that he foreknew me, matters because it convinces me that Romans 8:28 is in fact true. Okay? And that God works all things together for my good. The proof for Paul that God works all things together for the good of those who love him is found the test case is found in the Lord Jesus. Remember Acts, Peter stands up at Pentecost and he stares down all those who had crucified Jesus and he says to them the boldness this must have taken. He says to them, he was, Jesus was crucified by wicked men according to the, listen, the determined counsel and here it is, foreknowledge of God. The most evil thing that ever happened in the world was part of God's divine strategy through the activities of wicked men and it all worked together for the saving good of all those who would trust in Jesus. And so what happens is we follow the dark threads of our lives and we see and we know all the bad things that are happening with us and we do not know how all this will work out for good. But hear me, the Lord who made heaven and earth is able to take all the difficulties, trials, pains, and sufferings of your life 
and to turn it and to perfect it so that on his watch, everything that takes place in your life will take place at just the right time and in just the right way for your good. And as John Murray once said, not one detail works ultimately for evil for the people of God. In the end, only good will be their lot. And you say, well, what about my sin? What about the bad things I've done? Are even those things working out for my good? Yes. Even your sin. Even your sin. Will you have to give an account before God? Yes, you will. You will. Okay, so if that's true, then can I still know that I'm going to have to give an account before God and, and still believe that God will take all my sin and failure and somehow still turn it for good? Yes. You better be able to say that. Of course God can take even your sin and turn it for good. Some of you guys need to hear that because you're just destroyed in the wake of so much sin that you've been living in and you just think it's over. It's not over. It's not over. God can turn it for good still. And he will if you seek him. All things, even our sin, he turns for good. God's a master of bringing good out of evil. Have you messed up? I have. Look, I've messed up royally in my life. Have you messed up? Have you gotten to a really bad place in your life? Listen up. God can turn it for good. He can. He longs to. It's not too late. Get on your knees and seek his face. Well, friends, this is the love of God. To say that God foreknew us means that he set his regard upon us. It means that he knew us from eternity with a distinguishing affection and delight. We are foreloved. And when we think about God's love for us, we must start in eternity before we were even born. Yes, God knew that we would be born in sin and defy his commands again and again in time without number. But nevertheless, he set his affection upon us despite all the terrible things that he knew about us. He still affectionately handpicked you for a purpose. And that purpose was your eternal salvation in conformity to the image of Christ. God chose you affectionately. God loved you before he created the world. He knew you before time began. He set his affection on you long before the sun ever began to light up the sky. And that means, here it is, the ultimate conclusion of all this is that nothing, absolutely nothing will destroy your salvation. Or as Romans says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's not that God loves us that's so awesome. It's the fact that God loved, past tense, loved us. It's great to think about the fact that God loves me now, but it's even greater to consider the fact that God loved me from all eternity. We've been loved with an everlasting love. That's what it means to be foreknown. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to swim deep in these waters and get a deeper and more powerful apprehension of your love for us so that it changes the very way that we live. Take this word and through your spirit, apply it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Justified, and those he justified, 
He also glorified. Go in peace, and may God bless you. Amen.